0: For those of you who are staying in the term, let's take our Bibles, let's go in Matthew chapter 5 and then we're going to jump to Genesis chapter 2. Matthew chapter 5, if you need notes, the ushers have some, just raise your hand and they'll hand that to you and uh, you can follow along a little bit better this evening by taking some of the notes if that's helpful to some of you. Somebody asked me this morning, they said uh, is it okay if we don't take notes? Because I listen better and get more if I don't take notes. We're not doing it because you have to. We're doing this as a tool that might help some of you but some of you, you glean so much more more by just listening. The rest of us, we need to be writing, otherwise, we get distracted. So, if you want to have those notes, raise your hand. We're in Matthew chapter 5, and it's an interesting text. In Matthew 5, Jesus is preaching. And as he is preaching to the individuals and talking to them in the part of the Sermon on the Mount, he makes a, a comment, a couple of comments about what we are, his followers. He says in Matthew chapter 5, you jump down to about verse 14, he's going to make comments after he has said, You are the salt of the earth. Then we read in Matthew 5, verse 14, You are are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick or an elevated place, and it gives light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Just taking that verse, just to get started for our study tonight, it's challenging. It's interesting. According to this passage, we're to be different than the world around us. We're light. The world is in darkness. We're to be different from the world. That is, those who do not know Christ, those who are not born again, those who are not believers in Christ, those who do not claim to be following the precepts of the scriptures. We're to be a different type of individuals that we stand out, not because we're being pompous or or, um, arrogant about our faith, but rather because as we live our faith, we're going to look different, we're going to act different. Let's make another another application of that. This difference should include our, our attitude, our actions and conduct, the good works in such areas as, well you, you fill out the blank. What areas are we to be different in how we respond, how we act, how we have our attitudes? We are supposed to be different from the world. We are light. They are in darkness. In what areas of our life? In all areas. Give me some specifics. What In music, in worship, in our speech, in our work. Pardon me? Entertainment. Anything else? In our relationships. So let's just start listing. If we start putting down, we're to be different and respond different the way we treat others, as you said, respond to trials, the way we work, what we focus on, the jokes we should tell, uh, that we tell, the way we care for others. We're different in what we value, what we spend time on. Different in the sense of how we care for widows, the orphans, time in worship, the way we treat family members. Let me take it and put it in application. This also includes this area. We're to be different. We're to be light compared to darkness when it comes to our relationships with the person that we say we love the most here on this earth. We're to be totally different. We're to have a different different attitude, relationship. In fact, let's take it a little bit further. Jesus says we're to portray this difference all the time. You are the light of the world, and you're not supposed to hide it. You're supposed to show light. You're supposed to show difference all the time. That it's not supposed to be hidden because I'm angry and I'm really grumpy and I want my own way and we hide the light. That's not the case, okay? We're not to be embarrassed about it, but we're not supposed to hide it to, in order to vent. We're to be different. And so he makes the comment, he says, that these differences are used by God like a magnet to draw people to a point where they will want to glorify God. Think this through. Think of how this works in the way that you relate to your family members. I'm going to talk marriage in particular this evening, but let's expand it to the way you respond to your parents, to the way you respond to your kids, your siblings. We are to be different in such a way that others would see that our family unit is real different and they would want what we have. Let's put it up in this type of a question. Can others see a difference in the way your family treats one another? that they would say, I want what you have. Is your relationship such that it is a magnet to bring others to Christ? You know, you think about this for evangelism. What he is talking about is if we were consistently light and living in a different way of responding to one another in a biblical way, in a way that would honor him more than what we do sometimes when we get angry, we get mad, we get upset, we get frustrated. He is saying that we would reach more people for him. We would reach generations. But there's oftentimes generations, young people say, I don't want what my parents have because what they have, I don't want. I want something far better. I want something that I hear spoken about but I don't see in their life. Or, or siblings or others say, hey, wait a minute, I want something that really is a peaceful home, a peaceful family. You know, there's a lot of people who are in relationships, they don't have peace. And they should look at your family, your relationships, the way you interact, and say that portrays a peace of Christ. That's something I would like. I would like that, and I want to know how they got that. That's what this text is talking about. So how do we do that when it comes to our family? That's what this series is about. Helping us to be able to put together and piece together so that we can be a light that's more impacting. In order to do that, let's go back to the beginning. Let's talk a little bit this evening about the family where it starts that's with marriage. But the principles expand a little bit bigger than that. But just for a Bible study, go back to the beginning. Uh, I remember and I've shared with you before that I remember the story that when Green Bay Packers years ago were having a, a poor game stretch of games and they were losing. Vince Lombardi, that famous coach for whom the trophy that they they give out every year is is uh, named after he got his team together he said guys we're going back to the basics And he held up a football and he said, here's where we start. This is a football. He is saying that to professional men that they make a career out of, but he's going back to the basics. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. Let's go back to basics of what God says, 101 family. When there is no family but it's just the beginning, he says in Genesis 2. And we read as we start following in this text about Adam and Eve. Verse uh, verse 7. Of Genesis 2. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted the garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to sight every good, and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge, of good, of evil. Let's jump all the way down to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden, and said to dress it, keep it that is, and to organize it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. Okay, let's go on to verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helpmeet for him. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name. And Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the fowl of the air, to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helpmeet for him. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. He took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh instead thereof, and of the rib which the Lord God had taken from Adam, from man, made he woman and brought her unto man. And Adam said, "This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man." Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall become one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Let's do some basic principles to just get started. We're going to develop a lot of these things over the next couple weeks, but let's just get started. We learn this that marriage, the family, is good because it was designed by God. There are some people who would say, wait a minute, I don't like that family concept. I would rather go up into the wilderness and become an alone person okay and just be a survivalist because I think families and some of that could be because they came from a family that was dysfunctional could be because they they've heard things and they've seen some things and they've they've got a negative concept however Genesis says that we're social creatures we were created with the idea of wanting to have that inner reaction God designed marriage in particular to meet that need and our relationships and the, we talked about the last two weeks when we were talking about dating principles that it, there are only some that are gifted by God and we can look up the text and you can see where God gives some people gifts to remain single, to be single and the majority of us he says okay you're not that gifted you need somebody to keep you in control and to help you to grow in grace and that gives Us the spouses, and then you know, we have our children and our parenting, we're helping the kids to grow until they get to a point where they can have that special significant other. Marriage is to make our lives better, not hinder us. And yet there are some people who have this concept that marriage is something that's negative, not according to scriptures. According to scriptures, it's not something to be feared or something that that is supposed to be discredited. Rather, this is a good thing. This is a profitable thing. The only time God said in the beginning of creation week that it wasn't good, it was when man was alone. Everything else, he saw that it was good. Let me make another comment. Number two, the design was for one man and one woman only. That is very clear in this text. That is something that we need to remind ourselves in 2018 in America. Okay? That God's design was not polygamy. I understand. You read in the Bible that as generations went by, yes, they had multiple wives, but that was not God's original intent. Okay? God wasn't that there was polygamy. God's original intent was not polyandry where there was multiple husbands. God's original intent was not gay marriages. That's worth a discussion that we need to have in one of these evenings that's a little bit deeper and further because our young people are being inundated with ideas that are not biblical when it comes to this concept. But let's, for now, just for sake of time, let's move on to number three. Women are God's gift to men. This should rouse a hearty amen, okay, from the ladies, or at least the men. In this text, you, the way the Hebrew is, it's an interesting phrase where he says, the Lord made a woman and brought her to man. It says he gave as a gift is the concept. When Adam says, this is now, in the Hebrew, it is the idea, this is now about time after great length of time. I've been waiting for this is the concept. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is one I can relate to as this concept. I, I, I you know, Yes, the dog was fine. Yes, the cow was fine. Yes, the duck was fine all those other things, but they didn't meet that that need that I have. This is one that really, really compliments me and that we are lining up with. And then he talks about how God gave as a gift woman. Adam acknowledges this. Do you remember in Genesis 3 when he says it? It's when he's saying, who's at fault for disobeying God? It's the woman which... You gave me, okay. In that context, he's, he's, uh, he's defending himself, justifying himself for doing what's wrong, but he makes acknowledgement that God gave the woman as a gift to man. So what it should say to us is, okay, okay, appreciate the person that God has given you. Gentlemen, okay. And as well, ladies, appreciate to whom God has entrusted you. You know, that idea that God has designed, God puts peoples together. Number four, number four, it is God's design that married couples complete, not compete, but they complete one another. That concept of a helpmeet, somebody who would compliment, somebody who would, who would bring him to a more fullness. And the idea is that man needed the woman to become complete. Now, don't say this and don't walk away with an arrogant attitude that says, see, I'm the one that's supposed to get my husband in line. That's what that passage says, that God made me so that I as a female help complete the husband and I will tell him where he needs to get completed. Okay. That's not the concept of that whole text. The whole text has the idea that there is an interdependence of these two people upon one another in fact 1 Corinthians 11 de- develops this and it's an interesting phrase that he uses where he says the man is not of the woman but the woman of man. We understand that. Creation order. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. We understand that. Creation order. But he doesn't stop there and say okay, ladies, it's all about the guy. He goes on neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. In other words we both need each other. The genders, that that relationship, to be complete is we're both interdependent in the Lord so that we can complete one another. And I, as time goes by and as we've spent this summer, we celebrate our 40th anniversary. And during that time, it's like more and more I understand this concept, how it is so important that my wife helps to complete me to help keep me, you know, at times to see things better, to be able to look at things, to be able to fill in the gaps where I don't do real well with a relationship with people. She can help me out and vice versa. And so you know that in your own relationships. You know your strengths, your, your weaknesses. You know that some of you are real good with finances and some of you, 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 know, you couldn't figure out a dime in a paper bag, okay? It's a battle. You understand that. We know that. Okay? We have experienced it. Number five, married couples form a complete family unit in the eyes of God. This is an important concept because in this day and age, there's a concept that says that your family is incomplete without kids. That's not true biblically. Okay? And we need to have kids. And when we have kids, the kids become the focal point. That's not what this text is implying. The text tells us that couples, a man shall leave his father and mother and and become one with his wife, that you don't need children to be a completed family. Now, they're an extension of your family, but the kids are only an addition and only a temporary addition. It is normal and natural for kids to grow up and leave the mother and father. Oh, there's so much, there's so much important, important truth in that one statement important truth for the young people, important truth for the older parents to just say wait a minute, Where the natural thing that happens is the relationship between the husband and wife, that's the more permanent relationship and so these kids are an extension and so I'm a complete family unit. When we said I do to each other, we were already a family unit. When the kids came along, they just kind of expanded and extended the family for a temporary period of time. Which brings us to another important thought. The most important earthly relationship, therefore, is the marriage. In the family, it's not you as a parent to the kid, it's you as how you relate to your spouse. The problem with this is, do our kids demand a lot of time? Yes or no? Okay, we were, we were visiting with Dan and Heather. They just had their baby, the first baby. Beautiful little boy, Logan. Has hair, I'm jealous. And so we were there visiting, and the same thing I said to many of you that we visited in the hospital with, a, with the baby is, you know, God bless you, this is a wonderful time, but let me just give you something on a negative note in this blessed moment. The negative note, you're going to face some of the really hard times over these next few weeks. Mom because what don't you get for the next few weeks you don't get any sleep does that affect you emotionally does that affect you spiritually does that change your and he says well when we get back to normal you'll never have normal again correct correct it's a whole new normal and you say okay i don't sleep now for the next year two years about that time you have another one so um masochistic and so you have the baby and things change but one of the greatest dangers is the change in the relationship that can happen between the husband and wife. Because the baby demands, do you want to fill in the blank? Just so much, so much, that ladies, after a while, you feel like you've got no more to give. Husbands, you feel feel like you're being neglected. And wives say, he just needs to grow up. Wait a minute, that that relationship that you have is so important that you spend time together. If we did a survey right now amongst the group, this could be the sad truth. That if we said, well, how much time do you spend together as a couple working on your relationship apart from doing things with the kids? Now, I understand. I'm 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 going to create a guilt trip, and I'm not trying to. But it is so easy that we hear about parenting, we hear about parenting. I've been there I've done that. I know exactly what some of you feel like. I want to be a good dad, and when I go home, I want to spend time with the kids. But I need to spend time with my wife, but I need to spend time with the kids. And about the time that the kids go to bed, then we're both exhausted. And it's like, yeah, but we're supposed to spend time together. But we just gave everything to the kids, and we're trying to raise the kids, and we're trying to keep, you know, from keep finances afloat, and it's very difficult. And it's very challenging. Amen, amen, amen. Okay? Those stresses can create difficulties. But if you don't keep a balance, and you don't keep this perspective you will be one of the many statistics that's the second highest category for divorce beyond the teenage marriages is those couples in their mid and upper 40s going into their 50s when the kids leave home. Because what did they do? They focused as a team, a good team, raising the kids, but once the kids leave, what do they have in common? All the relationship was circling around the kids we joke about it. And we've done it. I've done it. You've done it. Where you go out for a meal you know, to say we go on a date. And what do you end up talking about while you're sitting there? The kids. Okay. And so that happens. But our point is, remember this truth. Those of you who are married, remember this. It is God's plan for the kids to grow and leave. It is, that relationship is limited. That relationship is going to change. But the one that's permanent, the one that they shall keep on becoming one, that's your marriage. That's where you've really got to invest in time in energy that you really grow together, that keep on becoming one. We'll see in a few more minutes. God has given couples three basic rules to follow. This is, again, this is the very beginning. There's three rules given in, in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, that are critical, that they are, the, they are the foundational rules. There's a whole lot more in the New Testament that we'll get into about what husbands are to do. They're to love. They're to lead. They're to, they're to lift up their wives. Uh, wives are to respect. They're to be a friend of their husband. We'll look at those. But the three basic ground rules are, though, are so important. They're so important, they're repeated several times in the Bible. This text, Genesis 2.24, is repeated in Matthew 19 when Jesus is preaching and also in Ephesians chapter 5. Now that is over thousands of years that it's, it's given and it's repeated and it's rehearsed in different cultures to different settings of people, which teaches us this important thought that these three basic basic rules are good for every culture, every generation, every group of people in every different language or tongue or nation or culture. They are good for all. And so they're important basic rules and they demand action. They demand that we do something. The verbs in this passage are all active verbs. They're not verbs of, of listening and learning. They're verbs of doing. Let me see if I can put it this way. I was reading somebody's comments about, about family, and, I'm gonna, and I, and I, I want to quote. Not to bore you, but it was so good. And he said it in such a pointed way that it could do a whole lot better than I could bring it up. And he's, the idea is that we as believers are to be doers of the word, not hearers only. He goes on, Christians in America have become experts at conviction and failures at action. But the first Christians were quick to act. If you remember the day of Pentecost, the people heard Peter's sermon and immediately asked, what shall we do? Which Peter responded, repent and be baptized. How did they respond? 3,000 went straight to the water to be baptized. That's the way it's supposed to happen. As we get convicted by a message, we should be asking, what should I do in response to this truth? I recently read an article about those who are heavily overweight, people on the earth, people weighing well into a thousand pounds, people who are eating themselves to death. At a certain point, they lost the ability to even walk. Eventually, they were bedridden, depended on others upon feeding them because they could no longer even feed themselves. And it reminded me a lot of the people I find at my church. They are fed more and more knowledge every week. They attend church services, join small Bible study groups, read Christian books, listen to the podcast, and are convinced they still need more knowledge. Truth is, their biggest need is to do something with the knowledge they have. They don't need another feast on doctrine. They need to exercise. They need to work off what they've already consumed. Some have become so used to consuming the word Excuse me. They have so used to become consuming the word without applying it that you wonder if they even can anymore. They, these are spiritually bedridden, resigned to spending the rest of their lives studying the word without ever making another disciple or tangibly caring for others. Wow. He's got it right. That is what sometimes happens to us. We learn these truths and we walk away and say, oh, that was so good. But we didn't do anything with it. Do something with these texts. Do something with these principles. They are very simple. A man is to leave his father and mother. That's a verb. That's an action that's supposed to be taken care of. And when he talks about the man doing it, the the implied is both. The man and the woman are to leave their parents. What he's talking about is this, okay? Is he saying we need to move long distances from our parents? Okay. Deb and I did. We did the week after we were married and for us that worked really, really well and it was good for us. Is that the mandate of this text? I don't think it is, it is a preachable um, application that you have to move X amount of miles. But the bigger idea is not that you ignore your parents or you avoid your parents. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 5 says that if you are an individual who has elderly parents and you do not care for your family unit, you are worse than an Infidel. Okay. So we know that we can't ignore our parents' needs. We know that we shouldn't just, you know, write them off. Okay, I've gotten married, therefore I never talk to my parents again. We know that's not what the passage is saying. We know that the passage isn't necessarily saying you have to move X amount of miles. However, the passage is very clear. The idea is to be independent of parents. To be independent. This includes parents on both sides. To become independent of the parents and become more dependent upon your spouse. Now, this applies to many of you young people, okay? If you, when some of you are dating, some of you are getting to teen years, some of you are in the college years, and you're thinking, you're hoping, you're saying, someday I'm going to get married, please remember this principle. That when you get married, you are to be independent of your parents. You're supposed to be dependent upon your spouse. What does that look like? What, how does that f- flesh out? You're no longer dependent upon them, and let me just list several ways. Emotionally socially, financially, physically, spiritually. You're not to be dependent upon your parents anymore. You're to be co-dependent upon your spouse. In fact, it would be this way. You should be able to pay your own bills. If you can't afford to get married, then you aren't supposed to get married. Okay? You're supposed to be able to do things together without always having to be doing things, activities, entertainment. It's not God's design that you can't function apart from your parents, The idea is that you're to make decisions on your own. You're to handle your own needs. You're to handle some of your own struggles and challenges. Does that mean that we who are older, who are the parents of married kids, that we're not supposed to be concerned? That is not the point at all. That is not what I'm saying. But it means that I need to let my kids learn to handle their own difficulties without intrusion or without providing a way of escape for them. The idea is that they're, they can have their own friends apart from the pastors and siblings, uh, parents and siblings. This is, this is going to be the contrary way of building a church. I advise married couples at times who grow up here to consider the possibility that they may want to leave this church and go to another church to become their own family unit within, their, so, within the community of the church so that they aren't known always as the talents kids so that they have their own identity and they have their own I I know that doesn't help our church at all but it helps the couples to become some sometimes a little bit more independent we I did that to my own kids when Tony and Christina were moving in back into Pennsylvania don't come here don't come to Faith Baptist go to another church for a period of time so that Christina doesn't feel like she's going to Tony's church that they can be their own couple, their own identity, even in that most important institution that we consider important to the community of the local church. The idea here of take care of your kids, you know, you take care of your kids without presuming that your parents will raise them. Okay, there, there's a whole bunch of applications that could come. I, I don't want to get off this until I talk to parents. Okay? When your kids are old enough to get married, then you need to let them go. That means you let your kids leave you and have their own life as a new family. That means you don't insert yourself in the decisions or the social life without their invitation. They can have friends. They can have people over, and they don't need to invite you. Oh. That's important for them. It is important that you let them deal with some of their own financial battles to learn. I'm not saying you shouldn't help them out if there's a need, but you should let them work out as much as they can. You let them raise their own kids. You had your chance. It's their chance, and they're going to make mistakes. You say, well, I can see it. Guess what? Your parents probably thought the same about you. They're going to make mistakes. If they want your advice, they will, yeah, and a lot of times they don't ask because they don't want it why because they know if you if they ask you you're going to put the screws on them that they better do what you say be very very cautious parents don't give your input or advice unless asked encourage and insist that they focus more on their mate than they do you and your rest of your family now this gets more complicated especially when we parents we elderly start becoming more demanding and we do become demanding physically because we can't take care of ourselves. We understand that that happens, and a lot of you are facing that. But you encourage them that they focus on their spouse, that that relationship is the most important. You refuse them, you refuse. Parents, parents, please refuse to let them come into your home and criticize their spouse. Don't let them bypass going to their spouse if there's a conflict. They need to go to their spouse. They need to deal with it between them and not bring you into a family discussion or tension. And if there is some real difficulty happening, you and I as parents, if our adult children are getting where there is some real conflict, they need to be reminded by us, reconciliation of that relationship is God's first will for them. Those are all practical areas of leaving and cleaving, which aren't being promoted so much in 2018. But this is exactly what Scriptures is demanding. Scriptures demands that you leave and you cleave unto your wife. What's that mean, to cleave unto your wife or your partner? Again, this is talking about the man to the wife, but not exclusive that she shouldn't respond and reciprocate. The idea is to be cemented together, to be glued together obviously obviously if two are glued together if they are cemented together then that means that this is god's this is god's primary will is that marriages are permanent the scriptures makes it very clear god what is his attitude towards divorce god hates it he says it i hate it does he therefore prohibit it and say everybody who's divorced is out of his will and can never be used no does he acknowledge and say there is permission at times for divorce to occur? Yes, he does. Yes, yes. We need to talk about that because some of you have been there, some of you are going to have family members who are there and we need to have the right concept that, that comes from the scriptures that says it is, it is within the local church. There is the possibility that we may have divorced people and they can serve the Lord. They are not hated by God because of divorce. Okay? But, but the primary goal should be let's make this thing permanent, let's work at permanency. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7 talks about if one of, the, one, of the, one of the partners leave, the first goal should be reconciliation. That should be the primary goal. Why? Because marriage is permanent. That means you work at it. You don't give up easily. That's the problem. Okay? That's a problem. That, we, 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 um, we begrudge, we, we wail about the financial condition in America. Everybody can afford to have what the Joneses have by going out and getting a what? Getting debt, credit card. We say, oh, it's just made so easy, especially for some young people or young couples who all of a sudden they want to have everything their parents had and they end up in tremendous debt. That just consumes and dominates. And we say, oh man, it's too easy. Well, guess what else is really easy in America? Breaking up families. It is really easy. It's too easy. And we as Christians said, let's, should say, let's not make it easy for one another. Let's, let's remember, hey, reconciliation is the case. And we understand that it, can't, it doesn't happen all the time. And when that happens to somebody that, that they can't reconcile, we need to love those who have tried, but they're being rejected. The other thing that it implies is this, okay, being cemented, glued together, your marriage is your priority. The marriage is the priority relationship. Your spouse comes more becomes more important than the family you grew up in. You've seen this. You know this is true. You have seen subcouples, some individual in a marriage relationship, that their parents become more of their focal point than their spouse. And you go, why did they get married? They're still clinging to mom's apron strings. They still can't function without the parents. You know, they're still dependent. If they have a problem, they go to mom and dad. They don't go to their partner. And that's just so not what Scripture says. You have time where you focus on your spouse. Even if you have kids, you've got to make time for you and your spouse. You've got to make time where you spend some some time together. We know as well, you don't put friends in fun stuff. Okay, what does he say? When I became a man, I put away childish things. Yeah, okay. That means that when you get married, there are times you say, hey, I love to play a lot of sports, but if that takes away from my time with my wife and she doesn't like that, I need to put away the childish things. Oh, I love to go shopping and I love to go to, you know, the places, you know, that me and the girls can go to. There's nothing evil and sinful about that in and of itself, but it is something that's creating a conflict for you and your spouse, you put away those things. That was high school, that was college, that was the fun times, but now you've got to focus on your spouse, especially if you're working opposite shifts and things like that. You've got to readjust. And So this cleaving together, let me give you number three. They shall keep on becoming one flesh. This keep on becoming one flesh, the idea is continuous. In the Hebrew, it's not, it just happens. It's the idea you keep on working on this. No doubt it includes the physical intimacies, but it's the idea of drawing closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. It demands spending time together. It demands talking to each other. It demands working out the issues. So I ask you this with a simple question. What have you done to build oneness this week with your partner? What have you done to build oneness You've gotten moody, you've gotten angry, you've gotten frustrated about things that they didn't do. Whoa, that helped your oneness. Well, you don't understand what it's like in my home. I do understand this. Your relationship with your partner is so important that if you have a wrong relationship with your partner, you have a wrong relationship with the Lord. And that it means that there's a whole lot of things that really aren't worth getting upset about and losing this relationship with my partner. That in light of eternity, I'm to be building her up, she's to be building me up, and that what we need to do is we need to slow things down. And we need to make sure that we are handling situations in a way that honors the Lord and not let it explode. And by the way, let's add to this. Marriages will be the object of satanic attacks. In the attack in the Garden of Eden, it happened to a perfect couple. They were much better than you and I. They were without sin at this point. They were a couple that didn't have the stress of money, kids, in-laws, outlaws, other people, or jobs. They had no stress. They were attacked. And in that attack, what it was is they were asked to disrupt God's commands to them. God's commands of, okay, don't eat this fruit. God's commands to you are to love. God's commands to you are to lift up your partner, to respect them. God's commands are to you to submit one to another. God's commands are you focus on them, make them your priority. Satan will attack you in those areas. He is going to try to get you to have division within your home. And then the attack was on God's orders and his order for the home. Remember, all of a sudden, man's supposed to lead and she leaves I was just thinking about this. What are some of the satanic attacks that he uses that are mentioned in the scriptures in families? Ephesians 4, communication. Satan attacks the way we talk to one another. Satan attacks when we become overcritical and not appreciative, not lifting up our spouse. That he attacks in that area. Satan attacks when we are angry and we let the sun go down upon a wrath because we're really upset about something that we thought was unfair or it didn't go the way you wanted it to go. And you're, you hang on to it. Satan attacks in this area by using those digging comments, those fighting words, those, you know, those push buttons to get emotions. Satan attacks by getting couples to lie to each other. To become jealous of one another. To resent what the other one can do and has, even in that relationship, that, that Satan is clever. He's been at this for hundreds and hundreds of years. He knows how to attack couples, and he's doing it in your family. He'll do it in my family. He'll attack us, and we have got to stop and say, now wait a minute, number one, the most important relationship is the bigger, better relationship, my walk with the Lord. My walk with the Lord Am I walking in the Spirit in such a way that all of a sudden I am responding Christ-like? I want you to just jump to Ephesians 5 as I close here. I'm going to jump through the slides and get to where I want to just wrap up here. In Ephesians 5, and we'll pick up with this concept later. In Ephesians 5, look at where he quotes this passage one other time in Ephesians 5. He says in Ephesians 5, jump down to verse 31, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife. They shall be one, two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. What does he mean by all that? He is meaning that the family unit is portraying how Christ loves the church. In other words, you're to be a gospel witness by the way you react to one another of Christ's love to the church. Can I ask you a point question? Did you portray Christ the way you responded to your spouse this week? Did you portray Christ his patience, his communication? That could be, his communication could be, he was a rebuking when he had to. How Christ-like are you when you talk to your spouse? How Christ-like are you, when, you are, when you're discussing something that's tense in your home? How Christ-like are you? Is this the way Christ would respond by making a really harsh statement? By, by attacking, by getting jealous, by saying, you get to buy things that I don't, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and it explodes. Are you portraying Christ in your marriage relationships? That's the critical text, uh, the critical idea of this passage. You are, as husband and wife, when you love one another, when you respect one another, you're to be portraying Christ. So in my relationship with my wife, I've got to ask the question, was I Christ-like to her? Was she Christ-like to me? Now, I I can quickly say, I can count, this is when she wasn't. I can find her flaws. The tough thing is looking into the Word and not using it as a mirror and walking away and forgetting about it. We're to be doers of the Word. The Word of God says we're to be Christ-like towards our spouse. At all times, letting that light shine. At all times, are you? Have you been? What are you going to do this week?